folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 21 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Our little podcast is all grown up and able to drink. This is uh, the podcast where it's generally Brian and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other bands that they may not be aware of, generally not jam bands. Because we love fish, we are fish fans. But sometimes a problem is going to come about, you're going to start trying to download these fish songs and these fish albums, and it's going to go really, really, really slowly because of net neutrality may no longer exist. So you got to go download some other bands, and hopefully those bands are nicer to you and have uh, higher download speeds. But the greedy telecom companies want to take your fish away. So you really got to... uh, Start branching out and hear some other acts and get that music. <laughs> exactly. We are we are here to spread the word, go beyond the pond, and uh, hopefully uh, take up your time when uh, when you're waiting on slow internet. Um, mm. This is like Dave said, our 21st episode, and today's a really special episode. Uh, this is our holiday run special. Uh, if you had told me a year ago that. Our podcast was going to go 21 episodes and that we were going to do a uh, 1970s era Christmas special. Uh, I wouldn't have believed you, but I'm glad that we're here. This is uh, this is fun. We're definitely uh, indulging a little bit more relaxed tonight in the Christmas spirit. We are um, not going to be uh, uh, I, I doubt we'll be participating in our um, drinking game. We'll just say the war on drugs right now to get it out of the way because we are 21 now. Yes, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some fish holiday run shows. We're going to be talking about Christmas music. It's going to be a fun episode. Uh, something to uh, help you guys as you're driving home for the holidays, or waiting in airports that are stocked with people, or uh, trying to deal with your uh, uncle who keeps railing about some uh, certain politicians in the White House. Yeah, this is an episode to kick back in an easy chair. Maybe on Christmas Eve there's some snow outside. Maybe you've got some mulled wine. You're in front of a clacking fire. There's uh, some Christmas music in the background or beyond the pond. This is uh, try to drink in the Christmas spirit. And on that note, let's get to some fish. So like we said at the top here, we're going to talk about a couple different things. We're going to um, focus initially on some underrated holiday shows from uh, Fish's New Year's runs with the 2017 New Year run, New Year's run looming. Uh, we wanted to focus on a couple shows that have fallen under the radar over the years but are definitely worth your time and get you into the Christmas spirit. Uh, we are also going to talk about um, some underrated holiday songs, some songs that should go on your Christmas playlist as you are uh, uh, getting sick and tired of hearing the same old stuff year after year as you're walking in and out of uh, 
department stores and going to Christmas parties and whatnot. But um, we're going to talk about two shows that I think both of us uh, quite enjoy. We've listened to over the last few days. The first is going to be December 30th, 1995 from Madison Square Garden. And then we're going to follow that up with December 29th, 1996 from The Spectrum in Philadelphia. Um, So kicking things off with 1230.95. So this is a show that's really interesting. Um, This was bookended by... I would say, I think that you would agree with me, Dave, two two of the strongest shows in not only Fish Holiday Run history, but overall Fish history. Um, and as a result, 123095 is pretty overshadowed and definitely been overlooked. Um, what are your thoughts on this show? No, certainly um, it's a very high-quality show. I think it's probably the weakest of the four-night run, which is still at such an incredibly high level that it's all quite relative. Yeah. But I was at... Um, Let's see. Uh, my 16-year-old self was found a way to get to uh, 1228.95 and 1229.95. Of course, being the incredible real gin, bathtub gin, real me into bathtub gin show. What in retrospect, my God. In retrospect, it's pretty incredible that my parents let me go to Worcester, Massachusetts, and sleep on some strange woman's uh, floor, and then go to these two shows. Granted, I was uh, with some other friends, and I knew them all from like Jewish youth groups and whatnot, but still, uh, thank you, Mom and Dad. I very much appreciate you letting me do that. There, there, there are a couple shows for all of our parents to, uh, that, we, that we should thank them for. Uh, Vegas yeah. 04 is it for me. I mean, not the greatest shows, but I don't know how my parents allowed a 19-year-old kid to drive to Las Vegas for three nights of fish debauchery. Jesus um, Christ. <laughs> you are 19. Oh, you're I a baby. I was, I was a little kid. I couldn't grow a beard. <laughs> Uh, um, so 12:30. You know, obviously this is this is the band's second show at Madison Square Garden. You can hear the energy right from the start. The first set is filled with heavy hitters. You've got Bowie and Divided Sky. You've got setless oddities that really keep it surprising and really fresh sounding every single time you hear it. Um, you know, I think you and I talked about this a little bit before recording. It's less notable of a first set for any sort of exploration. I mean, Bowie itself is 15 minutes, but it's a pretty straightforward version. It's really just a torrid version going forward. Yeah, um, it's a very good It's a very good 15-minute first set Bowie. It isn't anything like the big Summer 95 Bowies. It yeah. doesn't have to be. Yeah, and it kind of by that point in Fall of 95, I mean, obviously 12, 11, 95 has a really good 25-minute version, but you ha- they, they started to kind of focus Bowie a little bit more, um, which, which you would see over the course of the next year before it expanded again in 97. Um, but really, this set is notable for unique placements of really good songs, and sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes all right. that's all you want. Um doesn't always need to go type two. And uh, you get a really unique Caspian opener. Uh, that's one of my personal favorite slots for the song. And I like how this works similarly to uh, how, how it worked on 731.15 in Atlanta. It sets the tone perfectly. It's very much of a slow burn. It kind of walks you into the show right, uh, really nicely. And that was the second Caspian opener. The first one I saw... On December 2nd, 1995, from New Haven. I don't love these Caspian openers because they're really short. And it's the two-chord version of Caspian. I thought the song was kind of cheeseball at the time. Mm-hmm. Clearly, as you know, it's uh, gotten far more fleshed out. I think an opener would be kind of cool nowadays. But I mostly 
thought, oh, they opened with Caspian again. That was yeah. lame back on December 2nd, and it's lame now. <laughs> um, so you follow really quickly that up with 2001 into Susie into Bowie, which as a 2-3-4 slot as a show, er, at a show is just uh, a shot of a total adrenaline. Um, you're 15 minutes in the show. You're deep in a Bowie jam. I mean, it's the blistering 95 uh, uh, heat that they used to just bring into shows. Uh, what's interesting with this 2001 I think it's only about five minutes long and 
for um, Fall 1997. If you've been following on Twitter, we've been doing uh, the Fall 97 Twitter deep dive. And every 2001 from Fall 97 is like 14 minutes with like Superbad and James Brown teases. Right. So it was interesting to go back to this one and think, oh, okay, there was a time when it wasn't 10 minutes. Yeah, it's interesting to hear uh, 2001 that almost sounds um, like New Age or like like it's really danceable in like a Talking Heads type of manner rather than that like slow funk groove that you would get in 97. Yeah. you move from there into Simple, It's Ice, into Kung, back into It's Ice. I mean, this for me is the type of setless jamming oddity that marks a truly great show. Stuff that's just unexpected. You're never really going to see it placed like that again. Um, although Kung very seamlessly slots itself in the middle of It's Ice. I'm surprised that they haven't done that more often. Um, but were one of the shows around this less significant you can be, you know, sure people would be talking about this excellent first set much more. It's really a first set that just falls under the radar, simply like we were saying, based on the merits of 122995 and 1231, which a lot of people would argue is the best fish show that's ever been played. So yeah. it's, it's understandable this has been overlooked, but really, really just good stuff here. Very creative, very creative. Um, I mean, for me, it's the setless oddities, it's the speed that they're playing, the creativity that they're playing on a note-to-note basis. I, I just love it. Stall? Can we? Stall? We? 
second stage, a runaway golf cart marathon. Worth noting in 1995 that Trey could play its ice very fast and with no mistakes. Right. Like, to me, that's one of the more difficult fish songs to play from um, Mike Gordon's like Benny Hill show style bass line to, I mean, Trey, the guitar licks are just, it's a very, very, very intricate song. And in 95, they could play it faster than the version on Rift and really precise. And I think these days they have to slow it down to about rip speed and Trey can get about 75% of it. I mean, it's really interesting when you think about them at this period in time, you know, when they walk off the stage on uh, December 31st, 1995. And by that point, the early morning hours of 1996, they're not going to be heard from again in a live setting until late April. And then they're from there going to go to Europe in in the summer, but they're going to play a very short uh, U.S. tour in the summer that leads to the Clifford Ball. And then by that era's standings, a very, very short fall tour in 96, which would then be the kind of tone over the next couple of years towards the latter end of 1.0. Right. And I say all this because, you know, you talk about the speed that Trey is playing with. You look at 92, 93, 94, and 95, they're playing well over 100 shows a year. They're playing tours that are three, four months long. I mean, you can hear it in this show. Even if this is a slightly off night or a lower tier night of a four-night run, the band is so connected. Like, it's, it's like they can just communicate without any sort of effort. And you hear right. it in something like this, it's ice. No, it's... it's... They were incredibly locked in. I think at this point they're all maybe like 30, 31 years old. Yeah. So they're still relatively young and on fire and just peaking. Following up with that, uh, the man who stepped in yesterday, uh, always great old school fish you expect during a holiday run. Um, to me, and this is kind of something I've been thinking about the last couple of days we've been planning for this, I think of holiday runs in the same way as I think of the holiday season as I you know think of Christmas. You expect it to be kind of a peek back into the formative moments of the band. It's a time mm. where they feel this like warmth of the fan base. You know, they feel the warmth of the season. They're they're open to spilling their souls a little bit. You get these shows during the holiday runs, and I'm thinking about twelve thirty ninety seven, but I'm also thinking about um, uh, like twelve thirty two thousand and nine when they busted out a bunch of songs in the first set. Um, is that when they played like Gone? 
Yeah, yeah, and they played. Um, it was like some songs off like the Party Time Disc Two. Yeah, yeah, right throughout right. that. Um, but you know, there's. I think twelve twenty eight two thousand twelve in the same sort of way, like the way that that Wolfman's brother uh, goes into the, um, I believe it's a little drummer boy jam. Yeah. Um, it just it feels like old school gimmickry fish, and it feels like a band that is just comfortable at that point in time. They've they're looking back reflectively on a year of music. It's not as much as though they're like pushing forward their sound at this point in time. They're more celebrating what the sound was that they created over the past twelve months, as well as, you know, taking a second to reflect on where they how how they've gotten at this point in their career. And I feel right. like, you know, you throw a song like The Man Who Stepped in Yesterday out there, you get that. That's like that's the origins of Fish. And then to follow it up with Divided Sky, song that, you know, Pretty much every version from '94 through '96 is big and perfect. I mean, that just cements it from a uh, uh, um, just really emotive and big, you know, fish historical standpoint. And then sample set closer, right? Sample set closer, which I'm fine with it in that. That's room. fine in that slot. It's yeah. great in the set closing spot. It's a good F spot. yeah, yeah. Fucking Alehu, man. <laughs> <laughs> so. The second set of this show, it's not quite as cohesive as set one, but it contains what we think could be the best version of Harry Hood the band's ever played. I mean, I would say so. Certainly best, the best one to not fully go outside the box. Certainly the best, like, type one, the archetype of, like, a type one 15-minute Harry Hood. Like, it doesn't, they don't change keys, they don't really, uh... You know, play entirely different melodies. Doesn't get dissonant. It's not like, you know, say 2000, like summer 2003, like 28 minute version of Harry Hood. This is a, a compact, 15 minute version. And yet, relative to other ones from the era, I mean, to me, this one it feels like it's like sprinkled with fairy dust. Yeah. I, I just listen to it. I picture the Keebler Elves running around making El fudge. <laughs> just... Yeah. I mean, I've always read that. I've read on message boards and I've read on Twitter that everyone who was in the building at this point felt that like something really celebratory and really, really big happened, uh, you know, in like a kind of fish magical way. And you hear it towards the latter end of the jam when they're bringing it back around to you can feel good chorus. It's the only moment where Trey kind of alternates from the hood peak. And it's almost as though he's just like riding back and forth on a couple of different notes really quickly to just hold them at that sustained point. And it's like, they just know that they had reached this level where everybody was waiting for the release. And he just wanted to hold it, hold that tension just, you know, a minute or so longer. And it just adds a little bit to the jam that like it, for me, it's, you know, your fist starts pumping. Um, you get that like shit eating grin on your face. Every time you hear it, it's, Really, what what is perfect about uh, about that jam? It just it's it's so uh, it's 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 an elated moment.
just you're taking the 123193 hood and you're adding the talent and strength of a band in December 1995 which you know you can subjectively obviously uh there's there's reason to love um uh 93 versus 1995 but you know they're just a stronger overall band at you know two years later they've been playing that much longer and they've been exploring that much more that's that much deeper so um it's just that's a ridiculous jam yeah just want to take a second to talk about the free in this set which i really like totally because um on the soundboard you can hear trey audibly counted off coming out of yamar which is neat and then you just hit that huge d major chord and Fishman's drumming, it's so locked in, it feels like a march. It feels like a little faster than the average Free. Right. And I'm kind of with the mind that Free never got better after 1995. And I really, I prefer the psychedelic droning midsection as opposed to what it is now, which is like the wah solo leads into the, the like tray soloing. I didn't think it was broken. They tried to fix it anyway. I'm not sure it was worth it. Right. I mean, let's right, just... Right. Uh, take a moment to point out how incredibly different that the like uh, the version from Billy Breeds is versus any live version of the song. I think the one in Billy Breeds was recorded in E major, even though the song has never not been played in D. You can't hear the lead riff in the Billy Breeds version. That was the first one to introduce the like the wah solo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that I think like Steve Lillywhite like fucked up free for them. He's like, no, guys, do it like this. And they listened. second set you know beyond free beyond harry hood it's 
kind of hit or miss. There's an ACDC bag in the middle of it. There's um, a center mule. Pretty good center mule. Pretty good, but, you know, for mid-second set, it's it's just kind of a placement. I I personally would never really want it in. No. Uh, Cavern, I think, is in there, run like an antelope. I mean, it's... um, it's not exactly a second set you draw up, and when you think about the second set from the following night or the second set from the previous night, uh, it really has no comparison. It's all about this hairy hood. You're there for the hood. Yes, exactly. But, um, you know, for me, uh, 1230 is my single favorite date of the year for fish, and this show and the hairy hood and the first set really showcase why that is. Um you know, 1230-93, 1230-97, these are two of my favorite fish shows of all time. 1230-97 is actually my favorite fish show that the band has ever played. Really? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's just yeah. got it's got everything. Top 10 for me, easy. But yeah. it's, it's got everything I want. It's got a huge bust out. It's got great jamming. It's got the ACDC bag that opens things up. Um, when Tom Marshall comes out and sings 500 Miles, I mean, that's what I am ta- what I was talking about earlier in terms of, like, peeking back into the history of fish, like something that can only be done at a uh, holiday run, the encore that goes on forever. I mean, that's a show that I could talk about for hours. Um, I memory of that show, I was not there, but I was going to visit a friend at, at Ithaca College, which was a five – about a six-hour drive from where I was. I remember pulling into the parking lot outside of her dorm, and like right before turning off the car, like the encore of the twelve thirty ninety-seven show ended. So mm. it stopped. Turned the car off. I'm like, all right, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. You know, flash forwarding, fast forwarding to three point oh. Two of the best shows I've ever seen are 12-30-2012 and 12-30-2016. I don't know if I've ever been more excited walking into a single show than I was on December 30th, 2012, just because I knew I'm going to see Fish at MSG on December 30th, like the historical ramifications. And it was a great show. Excellent Carini that we covered a long, long time ago in this show. Jeez. Um, great down with disease. Um, but, you know... The aforementioned shows, 123093, 12309, 12315 is a solid show for the holiday run opener. Bathtub gin. Right, my God. Great gin, great chocolate like torture. Prout Rock, like Wilco Spiders, bathtub gin. That yes, show. yes. 123015. And these are just, I mean, they're some of the strongest shows the band's ever played. It, to me, when you go onto the Fish OD app on twelve thirty and you see all these shows that are listed there, I just get giddy because there's just so much to hear. Notice how you do not mention twelve thirty ninety six or twelve thirty two thousand eleven. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that show was offensively awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now we're actually going to talk about uh, December 29th, 1996 from the Spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That building has since been demolished. Now it's home to um, a large bar slash uh, kind of sports viewing area called Xfinity Live. That's where you want to go if you uh, want to pick a fight with some really belligerent Philadelphia Flyers fans. <laughs> so 1229 was uh, far and away the <laughs> The strongest show of the 1996 New Year's run, but whereas uh, December 30th, 1995, was overshadowed by the two very strong shows around it, 1229 is weighed down by an overall weak New Year's Eve run. 
weak New Year's Eve run. Clearly, strongest here is a relative term. We'd say 1996 is... Probably the weakest New Year's Eve run, not named, not named 2011. Yeah, it's almost um, here like they reverted back to the beginning of fall 96 as opposed to the end. Um, the set, set lists are very static. They sound exactly like they look on paper. There's very minimal improv throughout. I, I should note 1228-96 contains a very, very excellent Mike song in a strange design in a weak apog groove. But um, that show overall, uh, I'm not too huge on. And 12:30:96, I know I've never made it all the way through. And 12:31:96, I haven't really. Uh, I think I probably listened to it once. I think I've listened to every New Year's show, New Year's show at least once. But um, yeah, not uh, not the strongest run overall. Very similar to 2011 in that sense. I was actually at December 30th and December 31st. I had fun, but a 17-year-old in Boston without parental supervision would be expected to have fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a whole lot of stories that won't make the podcast, unfortunately. But um, on December 30th, for some reason, fish tickets by mail, they ended up giving me seats that were in like a more luxurious part of the fleet center. That resulted in uh, we got to eat fruit blended frozen yogurt that we'd even have to pay for because I guess it was included in ticket prices. I don't know. Aside from a decent tweezer and the band doing some funny things when the PA cut out during Funky Bitch and I guess uh, what's his name? Stephen Wright, the very deadpan comic, got to ring a bell during Center of a Mule. But man, 12.30.96 sucks. So in terms of 12.29, the night before here at the Spectrum, um, Part of the reason we selected this, I mean, the first set, you get uh, a really unique quartet opening of uh, Poor Heart, Cavern, or excuse me, Poor Heart, Caravan, Cavern, and Taste. So I just listened to it today, and the Lagrange set closer for for uh, the first set of the show is just so rocking, and they sound so into it. And Mike does the voice perfectly. It's one of those songs that I feel like they've played it once, 
not twice in 3.0. I think SPAC 2012 got a LaGrange. I could be wrong. But, um, man, oh, man, oh, man, that would be just a great cover to bring back. Set two, it's hard to come up with, uh, I mean, you can obviously come up with better set lists on paper, but um, putting Bowie, Lizards, Bathogen, You Enjoy Myself, and Harpua in a second set, that's, you know, throwing down some pretty good, uh, playing with some house money right there. Yeah, I would say nothing in this set is worse than good. There's a dearth of, like, type two antics, aside from... The wacky rotation jamming and a very fast version of You Enjoy Myself. Um, the lack of any real fireworks at all in the bathtub gin is a little confusing considering the barn burner version they played exactly one year ago and considering how friggin' good most Fall 96 gins were. What's interesting about um, the Harpua, when they play Champagne Supernova as being Tom Marshall being the uber demon singing the sounds of hell, but I think they realize that Champagne Supernova is actually a good song. I mean, albeit it was completely played to death in the radio in 1996, Trey bothers to get both the chords and the guitar tone right, and Tom Marshall really makes an effort at uh, nailing like Liam Gallagher's Manchester accent. It's uh, 
I mean, that song, it's a high-quality tune released at the height of the Britpop craze. Radio wouldn't touch it nowadays. I mean, you don't know what you got until it's gone, but I ride for that second Oasis album. So... kind of thinking you know with uh the shine version from new year's eve 95 this champagne supernova from 96 the band had an opportunity here to start a really cool trend of playing a song that had just been played to death on the radio at the new year's eve show as kind of like a celebratory gimmick what do we think uh they would do going forward throughout the 90s well, let's see. 1997, they could have done Semi-Charm Life, which makes me kind of stabby, but, you know. But it was everywhere in 97, yeah. right? And, I mean, wouldn't you love to hear Tom do some doot-doot-doot and try to rap that? No. <laughs> <laughs> 98, uh, I kind of thought Candle in the Wind. Uh, that was pretty much everywhere with uh, with Elton John with that song. Um 99, Every Morning, you remember that song from uh, Sugar Ray? That was 99? Yeah, I guess I was in college. That song was was huge. That was the big post-fly hit, I guess. Yeah, they, um, right. what did they name their record? Uh, 1459. Yes. 15 Minutes of Fame was just about up. And Let me tell you, that guy, Mark McGrath, after seeing him on like Rock and Roll Jeopardy, I've got so much respect for him. He, like, ran the table every episode of Rock and Roll Jeopardy he was on. He's actually got a really good sense of humor. I got to give him to him for that. I mean, he is... He was pretty self-aware. Um, jumping ahead, so no... Uh, so 99, you got, we would have Every Morning. I guess that would be an appropriate song as the sun's coming up at Big Cypress. Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> but uh, 2002 would have to be Hot in Here by Nelly. Uh, and yeah, I Fishman. You could have Fishman do that. Um, what would we have in 2003? I guess Heya. Heya probably would be it. That's, that, was my f- that was the winner of my freshman year of college, and that song was at every single party I went to. Jumping well, ahead, you get uh, into 3.0, and uh, reverting here back to some rock and roll, 
uh, I guess you could say, uh, use somebody by the Kings of Leon was everywhere at that point in time. Mm. I don't mind the first three records. They're actually pretty good. But by the time I used somebody, it was not so good. Every time I heard that song on, that was, I feel like, the last era where I listened to the radio at any point in time, and I feel like I just changed the channel immediately. Um, 2010, Hey Soul Sister by Train. This is a song I would never, ever, ever want to hear Fish play, but I do remember, like, this was in, like, 80 commercials in 2010. Fuck Train. That's all I got to say about that. Yep. (laughs) Uh, 2011, there's a really, there's two missed opportunities here for this song. So, Firework by Katy Perry. Uh, and it could have been like a Hold Your Head Up into Firework and a Hold Your Head Up for Fishbin, but I think they actually did I Kissed a Girl at one point. So, that kind of, um, they got the Carrie, uh, they, they, they got the Katy Perry quotient done with that. I think, um, there's the jam, the Down with Disease jam from, uh, Dick's. 2015 that has what sounds faintly like a firework jam so i've got to imagine that they've at least listened to the song and and are fans of it it is a great building pop song but the biggest i think the biggest fish missed opportunity was in 2012 which not bringing out tom marshall to sing like gautier somebody that i used to know Huge. That would have that was a huge miss, and it's right in his vocal range. I feel like he would have he would have yeah. nailed it perfectly. Exactly, it would have actually sounded good. That's not a bad song. No, that song rules. No. It's uh, it's I, I I don't think I. I it's a weird like, one hit wonder, but it's a good song. Yeah, I didn't go out and buy the record, but every time it came on in a in a bar, uh, I did not mind it at all. No, uh, it was kind of one of those songs that really leveled the playing field, like. There was there really weren't a lot of people that hated it other than just like true haters. Right. But no, definitely Tom Marshall doing like the you didn't have to come here. That's <laughs> God that we should have happened. We knew we were gonna get singing in this episode. I didn't know it was gonna be at this point, right. but that's great. Twenty thirteen um, Blurred Lines, which yeah, Trey liked because he heard it in his his kid's car. Song was everywhere. I don't think that that would translate very well about four years later, just with in the current climate that we're in. No, that's a God, no. But, uh, um, we are not advocating for that song to be played. We're just no. kind of musing over what would have fit this uh, this bill. Twenty fourteen would have to go with a song like "Happy" by. Uh, right. Um, that is a song I'm not a huge fan of. It doesn't really make me happy, but um, I know that there's a lot of people that that quite enjoy it. In 2015, certainly Uptown Funk. Pretty good song. Big knockoff of Moore's Day in the Times version of uh, mid-80s Minneapolis funk. Yes. But in and of itself, That's fine. basically just Bruno Mars's career, though. Yeah. And he does a really good job of it. Yeah, Bruno Mars is an excellent copyist. Yes. Um, And then I was trying to do some research on what 2016, 2017 would be. I don't know if um, becoming a father has just meant that (laughs) I I don't have any idea uh, what the kids are listening to these days or if rock music has um, really folded into... The, uh, the counterculture once again, and it's just not the mainstream. That there's not really a song that would be fitting for Fish to do. I, no, I'm thinking of like songs of the summer stuff that like owned the radio in 2016 and 2017 that wasn't 
much I could come up with. I think mostly because you and I were listening to not so much the pop radio stations, but it seems like the one ubiquitous song might not have been as prevalent the past two years. Yeah, I really am at a loss. You, you should add us, uh, fair listener, if you have a song that would fit this list of 2016-2017. Uh, think song that was everywhere, a song that you heard everywhere that would be just hilarious to see Fish play and preferably would be hilarious to see Tom Marshall sing. Mm. Um, but getting back to the show, uh, thank you for indulging with us there. Uh, <laughs> overall... 122996 here is it's just a really great example of the energy and excitement and history and gimmickry that one wants in a New Year's Eve show. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. You want that Harpua, you want uh, you want Harpua to follow you enjoy myself. Like that's really defining that you're at a special New Year's Eve show just before the full the 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 the, the, the end of the year. Um and you know, for what I, for what it's worth, I think that twelve twenty nine is really the only date that can really rival twelve thirty for the overall historical consistency and the ability to conjure up the magic one expect, expects with a New Year's Eve run fish show. You've got twelve twenty nine ninety four with a massive Bowie, twelve twenty nine ninety five like we were talking about earlier. Ninety seven has that excellent uh, second set with great tube, great Bowie. Uh, first set's got. Amazing Antelope, uh, 1229.98, one of my favorite uh, New Year's Eve run shows. That second set is just perfect note for note. Uh, 03 uh, in Miami. 09's got a great tweezer in it and uh, was a really great, uh, another like big benchmark show as Fish was returning in, their, in, uh, in 3.0. And then 2013, that's my favorite show of 2013, 1229.13. The Down Disease. It was the only one it wasn't at. Oh, man, I love that show. Yeah, it, no, that's, uh, that was the best show of the run it wasn't there. Yeah, that show feels like if Fish wasn't such a prolific live band, that show feels like a live album to me. Like they purposefully recorded this show to release to be like, hey, this is a capture of uh, who we are. The Diseaserini set too. Yeah, yeah. Really when, awesome. Uh, it's it's one of those shows, uh, the audience recording, uh, you know, we're so spoiled here in 3.0 where so many, oh, where all the shows are available on soundboard, but um, that's one of the few 3.0 shows that I solely listen to the audio because Mike's bass during that down with disease, you just hear it reverberate throughout MSG and the crowd just blow up over it and then they return to the disease uh, riff, which I love when that happens every time. All right, so transitioning here into, uh, I guess, the main part of the podcast. I don't know. Uh, we're going to talk about holiday music right now, something that uh, I don't think we ever really thought we were going to talk about. We threw this idea about this podcast around kind of as a joke for a couple of months, and then we're like, ah, screw it, let's do it. Um, so we're just going to talk about, in the most nostalgic sense possible, this is obviously a very warm and nostalgic type of time of year, what our favorite holiday albums are. Um, so mine, uh, a favorite holiday record of all time, uh, is Andy Williams, the Andy Williams Christmas album. It is <laughs> as Norman Rockwell American as it gets, <laughs> but my God, no matter what, this record makes me feel like it's Christmas morning and I'm 10 years old. Uh, there's just perfect ease and a bell-like quality to Andy Williams's voice. 
There's nothing about this album that's offensive or intentionally off kilter. And as a result, I think it's probably the nicest record that uh, any of us have featured on, uh, on, on Beyond the Pond to this point. Um, it's really perfect in the way that a Lexus commercial perfectly displays wealthy exurbs, like people living in the wealthy exurbs of, uh, of, of, of cities. Um, I probably listen to this album like 20 or 30 times every Christmas season. It's in the background if I'm cooking uh, or if I'm like shopping for Christmas presents online. I throw this on just to get myself in the holiday spirit. Wrapping presents. It's played by my parents incessantly during the holidays. I'm going home here uh, the weekend before Christmas and I'm going to hear this album over and over and over again. It's like all my dad wants to listen to over Christmas. Um, I will never get sick of this album. I every time I put it on it gives me the exact same feeling that I want every time I hear it but I will never listen to it outside of the month of December. I have no interest in ever hearing this record uh in January or or in uh in June for that matter. Um breaking it down and you know I was kind of thinking about this like we think about a lot of our albums here on Beyond the Pond. Um, side A, you've got the hits, you got White Christmas, you got Happy Holidays, the most wonderful time of the year, Jingle Bells. Side B is really where it's at for me. This is the contemplative slow burners that fit the mood when you've had just a bit too much glug. You're sitting in front of the tree. The lights are on. You're gazing into it for some meaning. It's got Noel, Oh Holy Night, Silent Night. I mean, these are just the holiday songs that just get me in that kind of lulled out, slightly drunk nostalgic sense it's it really represents everything you want from christmas break now as an adult um my simpsons fandom and for the other simpsons fans on the podcast i am obligated to say i didn't think he was gonna do it but moon river second encore (laughs) that's what i think of when i think of andy williams but uh he had a great theater in Branson, Missouri. He died in 2012. He uh, even had like a golf tournament for many years in San Diego. Thing. I learned but, it about him in researching for this episode. Right. Die hard, bleeding heart liberal. Mm. I I would have taken him as as conservative as it comes, but he was close friends with Robert Kennedy. He uh, spoke out actively against President Nixon. He was uh, very much an anti-war uh, uh, um, uh, musician. He was... I, I love him that much more now that I know all that about him. Fall on your knees Oh, hear the angel voices Oh, no So uh, the album I'm going to pick here is uh, because truth be told, 
there wasn't a ton of Christmas music growing up in a Reformed Jewish household in Central Connecticut. <laughs> but I'm going to say a Charlie Brown Christmas because I did watch a ton of Peanuts on VHS growing up. Many, many viewings of Charlie Brown's Christmas with Charlie Brown's anemic Christmas tree, the uh, really cool skating scene, uh, and everything else. It's a very warm, fuzzy escape from the world for about 40 minutes. And the Vince Guaraldi Trio, the piano jazz soundtrack, it's equal parts legendary and soothing. You know, I want to listen to it in front of a crackling fire with snow falling down, gripping a mug of something sweet and vaguely alcoholic. Um, the song Linus and Lucy, which you all know that's on here. Uh, the soundtrack to the skating scene, which is basically just like jazzy music, perfectly emulating a snowfall that's on here. And uh that scene in the music were amazingly parodied in an early South Park Christmas episode. Really, no one dislikes this album. It's the full moon fever of Christmas jazz. I think I played it like three or four times this week. And it's, uh, it should be, portions of it should be on every pleasant Christmas playlist, I think. For segueing to our next segment, we're going to discuss some overlooked holiday songs. Not so much overlooked as maybe not the first things that come to mind when you think of holiday music. So, Brian, what do you got? So, my first selection is uh, from Willie Nelson. Uh, it's a lead track off of his 1979 album, Pretty Paper. The song is called Pretty Paper. Uh, this is Willie's first Christmas album. And it was a song that he'd originally written in 1963 and recorded in 1964, but that Roy Orbison had actually turned into a hit. Um, Nelson wrote this song about a street vendor who sold wrapping paper and pens and pencils during the Christmas season down in Fort Worth, Texas. The man had his uh, legs amputated, and he moved on rollers. And uh, to attract attention to people, uh, to, to buy his products, he would actually shout out, Pretty paper! Pretty paper! Uh, the man's identity was revealed actually in 2013. It's a guy by the name of Frankie Bearton, and uh, it was revealed that he had refused to use a wheelchair and said opting to crawl as he learned to move uh, growing up uh, with a spinal deficiency. He didn't want to adjust the way that he had been moving his, his whole childhood. Um, interestingly, the uh, song Pretty Paper, when it was recorded by Roy Orbison, he did it in one take. He was battling 102 fever. So this was uh, 
like I said, Willie Nelson's first Christmas record. It was his last album of the 70s. It is a charmer, as one would expect, and across 12 songs, he charts the Christmas season with his affable wilt, his wit, his very down-home personality. Um, It's not the perfect Christmas album. I think that there are better versions of these Christmas classics, but uh, it's absolutely a wonderful one to drink some whiskey to, and uh, I hope that you enjoy uh, Pretty Paper. Pretty Paper Pretty ribbons blue Wrap your presents to your darling from you Pretty pencils to write I love you Pretty paper Pretty ribbons of blue Crowded streets, busy feet, hustle by. Downtown shoppers, Christmas is nigh. And there he sits, all alone on the sidewalk, hoping that you won't pass him by. All right, Brian, thanks for that song. I know uh, that's a record with which I am pretty familiar. I actually have it on cassette because my wife's late aunt and uncle, they uh, had that album on cassette. And we, um, when we were cleaning out their property, we uh, found a copy of it and uh, spirited away to our apartment. So the song I'm next and going to discuss is from a... Uh, a power pop band from New Jersey called Fountains of Wayne. They're uh, probably their best song could be Radiation Vibe, but they're a consummate 2000s, late 90s power pop band, and the song is called Alien for Christmas. This is a tune from their 2005 B-Sides compilation out of plates. And this is uh, basically the type of chipper, perfectly produced power pop song that these guys can bang out in their sleeve. Really... This is a silly, catchy, effortless holiday song. And really, like, sterling power pop bands like Fountains of Wayne, I mean, they don't really exist nowadays. If they do, listener, let me know where I can get a band that's as well produced. Um, Certainly, Fountains of Wayne's 2003 album, Welcome Interstate Managers, is probably my pick for best produced power pop album ever. And they've yet to top it. And they probably won't, because that was um, Interstate Managers was their third and easily best album. And they also had the mediocre Traffic and Weather in 2007 and the somewhat more adult Sky Full of Holes in 2011. Um, and if the band kind of seems to be more or less on extended hiatus, it's largely because uh, the producer and bass player, Adam Schlesinger, he does 800 other things, ranging from uh, he produces other albums he does soundtrack, and he also has a hand in writing almost all the songs on the uh, fantastic CW TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Probably, um, I would say that's one of my five favorite shows on TV today. But uh, he's the bass player. Chris Collinwood does the guitar and singing in the band. I know he has uh, some solo projects. 
But really, uh, the Adam Schlesinger production style is lush. It emphasizes vocals. He loves using Moog keyboards. There's a Moog solo on this song, and it's, um, you know, just a very effortless, friendly power pop song about getting an alien for Christmas. And let's play it. I want an alien for Christmas. switch things up a bit uh, from power pop to very heavy 80s hair metal Christmas uh, we're going to feature the uh, guitarist George Lynch and his song Christmas Sarajevo 1224 this song it's like Hey You meets Joe Satriani meets um, uh God, yet God rest ye married gentlemen meets the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Uh, this is, I think, the type of music that really up until a couple a couple of years ago, I would have just despised and I would have scoffed at. But I really find both the humor, the over-the-top aspect to this, the guitar wizardry and technical precision of it just blows me away. This is actually a really excellent Christmas song. I keep listening to it over and over again. Uh, it's ultra sin- sincere. It's shameless. It's total Christmas kitsch. But uh, um, these guitar lines, they sound like plastic. They rip through your gut. The piano is played with unrestrained passion, and the sound builds through peak after peak after peak. I mean, you talk about tension and release, and you get that in this song completely. This is, to me, the gaudy white elephant gift you're secretly thrilled to receive at your office party. Um, This is an excellent, excellent Christmas song. Uh, So George Lynch is a legendary hard rock guitarist, originally of the band Dokken and since the mid-90s, The Lynch Mob. Uh, Notably, he was named the 68th greatest guitarist by Guitar World magazine and the 10th greatest metal guitarist by uh, Gibson Guitars. He um, apparently taught Eddie Van Halen how to play the two-tap on guitar. And uh, in recent years, uh, this is quite interesting, he's pioneered documentaries focusing on the plight and overall impact of the destruction of native rights and opportunities, which um, finding out that our Christmas musical heroes are bleeding-heart liberals is really just becoming a good new uh, drinking game for me. And not only is he bleeding heart liberal but he's like the hakeem olajuwon of guitar yeah he swoops and dives and grabs for things he's you know george lynch is uh he's far better than any 80s hair metal guitarist has a right to be yeah i mean there's it's totally true the hakeem there's there's like a there's a gracefulness about what he does mm. like he attacks the guitar with total precision and power but like a butterfly like how hakeem was so i, I, I love yes. that image of it um <laughs> 
Yeah, I uh, like I said, this really this type of music is not really my wheelhouse, but it's really something I'm loving a lot, and I I think that you will, uh, I think all of our listeners will find something to enjoy about this, be it the over the top uh, kitsch of it or the just fantastic guitar lines that uh, you know in some cases could remind you of one Trey Anastasio. Um, so here's Christmas Sarajevo twelve twenty four by George Lynch. So at this point, we're going to take a, a brief hiatus from the holiday songs and going to talk about um, two albums that uh, did not make our top 10 list, maybe did not make our honorable mentions. These are our 2017 late bloomers. These are albums that kind of, uh, you know, they required several listens for us to fully grasp the quality and as such may not have uh, have not have made a list. And the album that I'm going to talk about it's the latest record which came out in October from St. Vincent called Mass Seduction. Now, uh, St. Vincent, that's the rock and roll name for Andy Clark. And uh, she's a heck of an artist. She's, um, I guess her stock and trade is, I guess I would call it like electro pop balladry with a very unique blend of uh, like scronky guitar outbursts. She's kind of a 21st century guitar hero. Lots of dissonance and noise, and she's always backed by, um, you know, sort of like an electronic drum soundscape. And she's a great lyricist and very excellent vocalist. Um, plus, she also changes up her aesthetics with every album cycle. It's kind of, you know, people call her almost kind of like a relative to David Bowie in the sense that with every album, it's not just an album, it's a whole different look, it's a whole different feel. And um, so I really loved her third and fourth album, third album being Strange Mercy. The fourth was the self-titled. And at first, the album Mass Seduction seemed a little too slick and vapid for its own good. It seemed to be her most poppy album. And not for nothing, she recorded it with uh, Jack Antonoff, Mm. who, um, you know, he also... He's worked with a lot of poppy women as of late. He uh, was recorded Lord's Melodrama, which is fantastic. He also recorded uh, the latest Taylor Swift album, which I don't quite love as much. And uh, both Lord and Taylor Swift are generally thought of as more mainstream than St. Vincent. So we figured this was going to be like, uh, you know, St. Vincent's kind of bid for mainstream acceptance. And um, 
you know, but the more I listened to it and sort of took it in as a whole, I began to realize that it really does stand up against her best work. It's interesting is that uh, the best songs, I think, are the last three songs in the album, being uh, Young Lover, Slow Disco, and Smoking Section. It kind of uh, ends on a very dramatic, very high note. And recently, I uh, saw her play it live. Her, um, in the past, when she's played live, she's had a band. But on uh, the most recent tour behind the Mass Seduction album, it's kind of like she plays two sets. The first set is sort of like greatest hits, and the second set is Mass Seduction front to back. And it's only her playing guitar to sort of like a live, loud backing track. And each song has like movies and there's costume changes. And it kind of felt more like an art exhibit than a proper rock show, but it was still really great in context. And, you know, it takes a lot of faith to believe enough in your new album to play it front to back two months after it's been released. Yeah. But after having seen it done, you know, I realized it was very good. The aesthetic was very realized. And, uh, you know, I'm still listening to that album quite a bit now. And I think that um, had I had a bit more time, it probably would have cracked my top ten easily. So I've got uh, a record that... um Similarly, uh, early on this year, this though this record came out kind of midway through 2017 and um, didn't really connect with me until the last couple of months. Uh, this is Kevin Morby's City Music. Um, so interestingly, Singing Saw, his record from 2016, was my number one album of, of the year. Um, and so I had very high hopes for this record when it was announced. And then in addition, I saw Kevin Morby at the Rock and Roll Hotel in D.C. in May. It was an excellent show. The new songs were great live. Uh, Come to Me Now, City Music, which was the opener with him dancing uh, in the middle of it and like kind of the breakdown area uh, section of it. Uh, song Nighttime, Pearly Gates, and especially the album's closer, Downtown's Lights. These were um, real standouts from the, the show overall. Um, notably as well, uh, he the encore was uh, Rock and Roll by the Velvet Underground. It was the first time that he had played it live. And uh, this was just a great cap to one of my first shows of the year. And great little bit of pre-Baker's Dozen fish geekery. And I'm quite certain I was the only person at the show jumping up and down and screaming every lyric. I probably got quite a few uh, awkward looks. But, hey, when you hear a song that Fish plays uh, on a regular basis live, it's basically a Fish song to me at this point in time. You're going to act appropriately. Um, and then Dorothy uh, closed out the show in full, and that was my favorite song off of Singing Saw. So really, really had every reason to love this uh, album when it came out. So why didn't it make my top 20? I'm, I'm not really sure. I, it was released in mid-June, which was at a time when I'd slightly burnt myself out on new listens. Um, I was starting to return to some of my favorite records of the year at that point in time. I wasn't really... Did, moving towards like discovering albums for for a little bit of time um plus fish tour was right around the corner i just kind of faded at that point from listening to new records for a few weeks and uh was listening to a lot of baker's dozen shows and fish did a great tour this summer so i kind of stopped you know I, I had to do a big uh refresh after the end of the baker's dozen um so it just kind of got overshadowed Whereas Singing Saw hit me at the right time in 2016 and never had a chance to really leave my top uh, five and ended up in my top one. 
Uh, City Music was really released at an inopportune time and was overshadowed by later big records like The War on Drugs or um, The National Sleepwell Beast, Gang of Youths, records that came out towards the end, later part of the year that really took up a lot of time for me. But like I said, this has come around to me a lot in the last month or two. It's a very much of a fall driving record. Uh, it's very contemplative, it's slow drifting. It's probably his most Dylan record to date. Really feels like an early 70s Dylan LP to me. Um, and really just kind of showcases the diversity of where Morby's going with his songwriting. Um, there's a lot of odes to kind of past artists. There's a, there's a very nostalgic feel in this. There's very much of a road trip vibe in it. And um, I'm actually going on a pretty big road trip here in the next week, driving back to Chicago. And I know I'll be playing this record uh, at least once on the drive. And um, You're driving? Yeah, yeah. We're doing Not flying? Nice. No, we're doing the drive, uh, bringing the dog. Getting the, right. getting the station wagon and driving to Chicago. It's the uh, Clark Griswold moment for me every year. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, no, really been liking this record. And I would say if you are, if you've liked anything that Morby has done in the past, Harlem River, Singing Saw, give this one a couple more tries. It definitely connects after a few listens. All right, now for our uh, final segment of this evening, we're going to do uh, some more overlooked holiday songs. So the song I'm going to discuss here is Green Sleeves, which in of itself is not that overlooked. But this version is uh, by Jimmy Smith, the uh, classic organ player who I think we've mentioned on this podcast before in one context or another. So I'm going to talk about his version of Green Sleeves, which comes on uh, his Organ Grinder Swing album. He recorded for Verve Records in 1965 in a trio with, uh, with Kenny Burrell on guitar and Grady Tate on drums. And I'm probably going to guess this is not the only version of Green Sleeves that he recorded, but it's certainly the one that I'm most familiar with. And it's really only kind of green sleeves in the most loose sense of the word, in the sense that he really toys with the melody at the head of the song before just, you know, going off in any variety of ways. And, of course, uh, the Hammond B3 organ, that's uh, his main instrument. This is some very torrid organ jazz. And uh, this entire album, the Organ Grinder Swing album, the whole thing is good. And most of the albums he recorded for Verve in the late 60s feature big bands, so, you know, the ability to hear him uh, in a trio setting is a treat, and the album really maintains a very smoky jazz club uh, ambience throughout. I know, um, I think two years later in 67 is when he would record uh, his famous albums with Wes Montgomery, the guitarist being a dynamic duo, and the further adventures of Jimmy and Wes. So uh, this is kind of the start of that because there's almost as much Kenny Burrell on this album as there is Jimmy Smith. But in any event, let's listen to uh, this version of Green Sleeves by Jimmy Smith. Thank you. 
picking up right there with the uh, smoky jazz feel for Christmas. You know, there's something about uh, New York City Christmas, um, the idea of being in a club on the West Village or the Lower East Side, smoking cigarettes and listening to jazz music that really just gets me uh, all warm and fuzzy. And had to pick a song that felt that way. Uh, Booker Irving's White Christmas. This is just a fantastic take on uh, um, uh, a very, very classic Christmas song. So Booker Irving uh, was a tenor saxophone player, regularly played with Charles Mingus. Um, he learned how to play the saxophone uh, when he was in Okinawa, stationed there with the Air Force, taught himself how to play it, moved to Boston to attend the famed Berklee College of Music, and then moved to New York City to join with uh, Horns Parlance Quartet, and from there began working with Charles Mingus, and at one point formed his own quartet as well. Uh, a lot of people at the time were comparing him and his work to uh, that of John Coltrane's. He was gifted the nickname African Cookbook, uh, and really was just throughout the entire uh, you know 50s and um, throughout this whole era of, of uh, um, kind of jazz highlights in uh, New York City was pretty prominent. Um, sadly, though, he died of kidney disease at 39 years old. And uh, you hear mm. this song and you're just going to hear a talent that was gone far, far, far too early. Um, like I was saying, though, this this really sounds like a divey underground bar in New York City during Christmas. It f- sounds like kitschy lights and Quiet jazz and whiskey, smoke inside, just smoke like kind of lingering there. Um, it's really the kind of warmth that you crave in the holidays and the city walking around through cold alleyways and up and down cold streets trying to get some last minute Christmas shopping in or get some last, uh, putting some last shifts at work before you uh, go home to spend a couple of days with your family. Um, so just kind of sit back. Take a sip of some glug, a little bit of beer, maybe have a shot of whiskey while you're at it. Just get that warm and fuzzy feeling while you're listening to White Christmas here by Booker Irvin. Thank you for that song. Now, um, the last song we're going to showcase here is from the late, great Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings, Eight Days of Hanukkah. So this was the opening track from uh, Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings 2016 holiday album. It's a holiday soul party. 
which was fantastic. And it was also released in mere weeks before she died at the age of 60 uh, from cancer, uh, very sadly. Actually, I had tickets to see her uh, do a holiday show on December 10th of 2016, and um, it obviously never happened for that reason. And it's just... Uh, she was an incredible singer, incredible musician, full of charisma, and it was a huge loss to anybody who loves funk and soul and just anyone who, uh, you know, loves seeing an individual who is able to really, uh, really like fulfill a lifelong dream. You know, uh, she got the same backing vocals uh, with Fish for Festival 8 in 2009 in Exile on Main Street, and, um, you know... Certainly 2017 felt the loss of uh, not having Sharon Jones around. Absolutely. But uh, what's great about this song is that it's an original with lyrics that were obviously written by members of the Dap Kings, uh, backing band, several of whom happen to be Jewish. So there's references to latkes and brisket and playing dreidel and uh, even how Sharon Jones loves Hanukkah so much more than Pesach. So keep that Manischewitz up on the shelf. Uh, the first time I heard this song, I I burst out laughing. It's because it was clear that uh, her band members had a ton of fun writing the lyrics and celebrating the holiday. And uh, there's like horn hits corresponding with each of the days. They say like day two, and there's two horn hits. What's always kind of annoyed me about this song is that no one ever thinks of Hanukkah in terms of days. It's always about the nights. It's about eight crazy nights. We light the candles at night. Everything is first night, second night. Yeah, days doesn't make any sense, and the Dab Kings probably knew this, but they figured that singing eight days of Hanukkah sounds better when it's being sung the nights. So I um, have to feel that's why they went ahead and did it that way. But uh, take it from this Jewish person that Hanukkah is all about the evening. <laughs> but in any event, this song is a hundred times less annoying than Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, and uh, really should be a new era Hanukkah standard. So let's listen to Eight Days of Hanukkah from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Sharon Jones and definitely a loss that we've all felt here in the larger musical community. Um, so recapping the songs that we played. So at the top of the show, you'll remember we talked a bit about uh, two underrated fall holiday run shows. Uh, we focus on 1230.95 as well as uh, 1229.96 and showcase some highlights from there. Um, 
We then jumped into our overlooked holiday songs. Uh, we started with Willie Nelson's Pretty Paper. Moved into Fountains of Wayne, Alien for Christmas. George Lynch's torrid Christmas Sarajevo 1224 came next. I uh, hope that you guys all enjoyed that. Um, and then in our last segment, we, we talked about Jimmy Smith's Greensleeves, Booker Irvin's White Christmas, and ended it with Sharon Jones's Eight Days of Hanukkah. Mm. Just a reminder about uh, you can find us on social media. We're at uh, on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. One word. We've got a medium page, medium.com slash beyond the pond. And um, the master Spotify playlist that kind of gathers a bunch of songs we've been playing throughout every episode. We found uh, beyond the pond podcast songs. And expanding on Spotify, we actually put together two new playlists that um, were pretty recent, being uh, the playlist that correspond to all the songs we played in our recent Best of 17 episode. That's uh, Beyond the Pond 27 Best Of. And also all the songs that we had posted when we did our um, Beyond the Pond Fall 1997 deep dive on Twitter. That can be found on hashtag BTP Fall 97 Deep Dive on Spotify. That's got uh, 57 songs and is pretty awesome if I don't say so myself. Yeah, good stuff. We're going to keep bringing you guys uh, new diverse playlists, new episodes as we move here into 2018. And um, I know that we said this in our top albums episode, but this is our last episode of 2017. And we want to thank you guys all. Uh, who followed along with us in our first year. Uh, some really great community feedback, some great insight from all you guys, and uh, we've really been feeling the love. Uh, I am glad to close out 2017 here, and now we are of drinking age as a podcast, which mm. means great things for our future. In any event, <laughs> I can say that uh, 2018 is uh, going to be a very monster year for Beyond the Pond. We already uh, have some... Very interesting guests planned going forward, some interesting episodes. So uh, certainly we are not going to slouch in the new year. So at this point, I would say enjoy the uh, fish holiday shows. If you happen to go into any of them, if you happen to do a couch tour, um, I'm very much looking forward to those. I know uh, I have tickets to the 29th and the 30th. My tickets to the 30th are very bad. I might have the chase bridge in my face, so I uh, might have to do something about that. But uh, certainly looking forward to that. Brian, uh, you're not going, right? You're in Chicago? I will unfortunately not be at uh, New Year's this year. I went last year. Um, going to be in Chicago with family, and uh, then we'll be just arriving back in Maryland to couch tour probably the 30th and the 31st, which I'm excited about. But, um, yeah, we... Uh, we're going to take a, a, a slight break here um, following this episode being released, but I'm pretty sure we'll be back with a review of um, uh, whatever goes down at MSG, uh, hoping that they pick up right where they left off after the uh, Baker's Dozen. And um, then, yeah, like David said, we got some great stuff planned for 2018, uh, not only guests, but also um, kind of some new and inventive ways to bring you guys new music and talk about fish and all that sort of stuff. So very, very excited here. So 
on that note, I would say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and uh, Merry Fish Holiday Run. And we will definitely be back in 2018. And until then, smoke them if you got them. And then come back in January. We'll be together. We'll go beyond the pond. Mm-hmm.